Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini and McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. We're going to dive into the Supreme Court's ruling on the Andy Warhol versus Goldsmith case. And with that, we bring in Albert J. Soler, partner of Skarinski Hollenbeck. He's the founder of the B Street Entertainment Group and the B Street Music Group as well. So, Albert, last week, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its long-awaited decision in the case involving the Andy Warhol Foundation and photographer Lynn Goldsmith. The case involved a one-time license in 1984 to Vanity Fair for a photo that Goldsmith took of Prince, and that license was for use of that photo by Andy Warhol to create a silkscreen portrait, which ended up appearing in that article in Vanity Fair about Prince. What was not licensed was Warhol's creation of a series of additional works, all based on that same photo of Prince which was then called the print series. And the Warhol Foundation licensed one of those additional works called Orange Prince to Condé Nast when it ran a feature in 2016 when Prince died. All of this was done without Goldsmith's permission. In focusing on the first prong of the copyright fair use analysis, the Supreme Court found that Orange Prince, that one particular work, did not make fair use of Goldsmith's original photo and that that work constituted copyright infringement. I know there's a lot there, but we would love to get your thoughts on that decision. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot there. And thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, There's a lot there. To keep it kind of a little bit concise, remember, under copyright law, the author is given certain rights. It's their work. They have the right to create derivative works and make money off of those works. Here, what happened is that it's a clear case of the foundation overstepping the bounds of the license, right? You are afforded certain rights under the license. In this case, they went above and beyond that and surpassed what the license actually afforded. So uh, the Supreme Court got it right in that the purpose and character of the foundation's use was no longer with respect to the license in the one photo. Now they made different additions. So the court looked at it and said, well, what's this for? Well, it's for commercial use, right? So they took now a core image belonging to somebody else, a copyrighted image, and now they're using it for commercial purposes. I think they got it right. The other factors, Albert, besides the um, purpose and character uh, are the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount of, and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the whole. And the last factor is the effect of the use upon the potential market value of the copyrighted work. Uh, they focus much of their analysis on the first factor that you just talked about. But how does fair use look like with regards to the other factors, particularly with someone like Andy Warhol? Right. That's a great question. So just real quick, when the courts analyze the four-factor test, not any one of the one uh, of the terms is dispositive, meaning that it could be the case to be decided on one term, two terms, three terms, or a balancing of all four factors. In this case, I agree with the court. Number one was the most prominent. It was the most important. However, with respect to the other three, if you look at the nature of the copyrighted work, well, it was an image. 
and the foundation and Warhol took the entire image. That's one. Uh, the amount and substantiality of the portion used, well, it was the entire image, right? So there's no issue there. There's no question there. And the only one that wouldn't really weigh against Warhol was the effect of the use on the potential market for the actual image. Um, somebody who buys a Warhol understands he's a prevalent artist. He's a legend. He's an icon. They're purchasing Warhol's vision, his art, his artistic talent, um, even though the underlying image may belong to somebody else. Somebody's not going to stop purchasing the image because the Warhol's there. They're totally different markets, in my opinion. They have nothing to do with each other. Um, so I don't think four is dispositive or even relevant, frankly. I think one is the way to go. The court focused on it. I agree. Two and three also support the court's decision. So, Albert, some legal experts have claimed that this decision will be narrowly interpreted and will not likely have sweeping consequences on how the fair use analysis is applied going forward, while others think it is going to be highly impactful. What are your thoughts on that? So the fair use analysis, it wasn't changed in how it was applied. It's always been applied this way. What I think some of the experts are not realizing, and I've litigated many cases and I live this business, so I understand a few different aspects of it. You have to understand that litigation is often used as a tool to create financial harm and damage. Okay. And so it's not just a matter of whether it'll be more people suing artists. It's who's the artist. This is Andy Warhol. This is a legend throughout the world. This isn't the artist that's just creating things at home and he or she is selling them, you know, on a corner somewhere trying to get known. Why would somebody spend 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 to litigate that when there are no damages? There's no deep pockets. There's no money. Litigation is always thought of also as what do I get out of it? I've been in many cases with copyright trolls who go around and trying to just get quick settlements over you know, a one day use of an image. That's this country and that's the judicial system. There's no way to get around that. So to answer the question, the analysis will remain the same. Uh, but I do think that with respect to the bigger artists who often do what Warhol does, use an underlying image, I do think it's going to increase litigation. I do think that photographers and copyright trolls are going to also try to get their uh, to get their benefit out of this as well. So we're also beginning to see IP litigation stemming from the use of emerging technologies such as AI and NFTs. What impact do you think this decision is going to have on the evolution of these technologies going forward? I think that the technologies, especially with respect to music, but AI in particular, is a watershed moment. I liken the use of AI in art and music to when music went to streaming. Uh, companies try to fight it. Record labels try to fight it. I knew from the beginning you weren't going to fight it. You're going to have to go with it. You're going to have to adapt to it. Uh, with respect to this decision in AI, what I see happening is Artists, entertainers, content creators are going to have to adjust their model. I'll give you an example. When it comes to music, they're going to have to adjust the model because right now AI is creating brand new tracks by artists and they never stepped in the booth and they never recorded a single word. So what happens is that a lot of litigators and people in entertainment who haven't really been in this business long enough don't realize that it's not just a copyright issue. It's an issue of the use of someone's name, likeness, the right to publicity and celebrity. This is someone's soul. This is someone's likeness. It's their work. When somebody creates a song by Jay-Z and Jay-Z never stepped in the booth, that's a violation. That's somebody's likeness and image that they work tirelessly to create. So the short answer is that AI is going to have a monumental impact on both art, on music, and how the artist seeks to get paid. 
For example, in music, it should be a publishing uh, split and the original artists, if they want to go along with the technology, should take a substantial portion of the publishing and benefit from their use of their likeness and name. Albert, turning quickly to another uh, prominent IP case in the news lately, the Ed Sheeran victory. Uh, how significant of a decision was that, you think, uh, given that the last really large case that caught everyone's attention, the Blurred Lines case, was you know, also thought to be very significant? How does the Ed Sheeran victory over the Marvin Gaye estate change the dynamic at all? Or maybe it doesn't. What are your thoughts on it? I don't think it changes it at all. That case, the Ed Sheeran case, should have never gotten that far. The decision was absolutely correct. I was surprised that it even went that far. You know, as much as I, you know, respect all the artists and and, and the estates of all these magnificent artists, got to be careful not to go for anything more than what's correct. Okay. In this case, what happens with music is there are chords and there are certain features of music that cannot be copyrighted. Why? Because there's a limited number of chords. There's a limited number of chords that can be played. You cannot copyright that and you can't claim ownership of it. In fact, Ed Sheeran did a brilliant thing. When he walked in and played a bunch of popular songs, his point was what I just mentioned, which is that, look, I can play the same three chords five different ways in a manner that 15 different songs used it. You can't copyright certain chords. And I think that any expert would tell you that. I've been involved in cases like this. I've retained those experts and I'm very familiar with how that works. They give you a report and they say these three chords are not copyrightable. That's the end of the case. The Ed Sheeran case was correctly decided. Albert, speaking of that uh, very prominent testimony by Ed Sheeran, where, as you said, he came in and he played his guitar. One juror commented on that was the deciding point in her favor. How much of that do you think was the jurors actually understanding the you know, expert testimony, so to speak, of Ed Sheeran, uh, of the different chords, versus just being starstruck by him playing in person? I mean, that had a lot to do with it, I'm sure. Look, the, the, the showmanship and the notoriety of an artist always has impact. However, I don't think that that was it in this case. I think what was more persuasive was not just that he's a star. That, that has something to do with it. But what type of star he is. You see, Ed Sheeran is a very accomplished musician. He's actually a real songwriter. He plays a multitude of instruments. He has the gravitas and he has the experience and the resume to command that kind of respect. So when he goes in there, he's not somebody who's sampling a bunch of music and putting lyrics over someone's music or having, you know, a record label write all the songs and they sing it. This is a true musician. This is somebody who gets on stage and creates entire songs and pieces of work with one loop recorder and 10 instruments. He has that gravitas. He has that reputation. And I think that carried the day. I think it had a lot to do with it when you combine his stature in music with the expert's analysis that was correct. You put those two together, sprinkle a little fanfare in there with celebrity, and you have the right decision. Albert, you definitely have one of the great backdrops of any guests we've had on Legal Faceoff in nine years and well, three years doing Zoom. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what you do besides practice law. We always like to learn about lawyers who uh, are not just you know lawyers, but do other interesting stuff, and you certainly fit the bill. You've got a couple of minutes left here. Why don't you tell us about your, your other hobbies and interests? No, I appreciate that. Thank you. So we are at home and uh, we're in my home studio. I, uh, I live this life. I, be, I feel like in order to be an effective attorney in entertainment, you have to live it. I've done world tours. I represent a lot of artists. I've lived the life that they live. So I understand the struggle. I understand the grind and puts me in a different position. So I'm an entertainment attorney, litigator. I also own Beat Street Music Group and Beat Street Entertainment. My artist, Bella Lassay, is coming out. Uh, we have three songs out already. She's performing at the... Uh, the Puerto Rican Day Festival in New York, and uh, everyone listen out for her. And, and again, just to, to this whole point is I've been producing for about 15 years. 
when I walk into a studio, when I walk into a client who's a producer, I speak the same language. I know the equipment. And it just gives me an insight that's a little bit more in depth. And I think clients enjoy that. My music clients enjoy the fact that I speak the language. Most of all, I love music. I always have. And for me, it's an important part of my life, like it is many others. So I love what I do. But thank you for asking. I appreciate it. That's Albert J. Solar, partner of Skarinski Hollenbeck. Albert, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Let's examine the Supreme Court's decision on the case of Gonzalez versus Google. With that, we bring in Professor Michael Carroll of the American University Washington College of Law. Professor, thank you very much for being here today. Great. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Professor, the family of the plaintiff in this case sued Google and some other big tech companies, alleging that they allowed ISIS uh, to basically organize based on the algorithms that Google put forward uh, in a decision um, recently, uh, the Supreme Court, some say would basically have dodged whether Section 230 um, really allows Section 230, of course, of the Communications Decency Act, a 1995 law that shielded big tech from a lot of these kind of lawsuits, whether the decision um, is really precedent-centric precedent setting or whether they just sort of uh, dodge the issue entirely. Why don't you bring our listeners and viewers up to speed on uh, pick it up from there if you can. Sure. Um, so I think the, the short answer to your question is yes, they dodged it, but 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 they did it for a reason. Um, the uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook and Go and YouTube were, were the basis of the lawsuit. Um, and in order to prove that they had aided and abetted an act of international terrorism, uh, the argument was, yeah, not just providing a, a platform for ISIS, but also the recommendation algorithms um, were uh, what boosted the, the presence of that. So the tech companies had two responses. One was, actually, you can't tie our assistance to the attack in the Paris nightclub in, in 2015. And that's what your legal burden is. The plaintiff said, no, our burden is to show you just helped ISIS. So that was one legal question. And then the tech company said, even if you could show that, um, you're trying to blame us for ISIS's videos. And under Section 230, you can't hold the provider of a quote unquote interactive computer service 
liable for speech uh, that was uh, put on the platform by someone else. So uh, what happens then is the court ends up just deciding the case on the first question. So you never get to Section 230 because they say you had to, the, it wasn't just helping ISIS. You had to show that the platforms helped with the attack in Paris and you just can't show that connection. And to that point, uh, in a unanimous decision, decision by Justice Thomas, he said that the connection between the social media companies um, and the attack was too far removed. But you know what struck me, and I listened to a lot of the decision or, or a lot of the argument, I should say. You know, a lot of it was like you know hard to follow because it was really bogged down in some you know thumbnails and some really uh, minutiae details of social media. Um, but what struck me, Professor, is sort of this idea of What's the algorithm, right? Is an algorithm something that the tech companies are actively engaging in? In other words, are they pushing people towards certain content, or is the algorithm simply a benign, you know, um, you know, director of people to see, you know, where their interests lie? In either case, it does seem like, you know, these tech companies do have some say into what kind of content they're pushing to certain viewers and certain consumers. Yeah, so absolutely. And and uh, and I think, um, so li- let's talk vocabulary for a minute. They like to call themselves, quote unquote, platforms, making it sound like, oh, I'm just a stage and you're performing on my stage. But that, that might have been true in the 1990s, but that is not the social media that we have today. Um, so when you talk about thumbnails, what, what that was about was uh, so Section 230 is 26 words, and it says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher of content provided by, quote, unquote, another information content provider. So they're just saying, well, ISIS is the one who's providing the content. But there's a definition for that information content provider, and it's whoever developed the information in whole or in part. So the lower courts have had to say, well, when does the platform play a role in developing it? And should these recommendation algorithms be treated as developing this information? So the plaintiffs were arguing in that. Uh, I listened to both arguments that took <laughs> collectively almost six hours. Um, and yeah, the plaintiffs ended up narrowing their claim to saying, well, we're not even in Section 230 world because we're claiming that it, that YouTube, by selecting a frame from the video and placing that as the thumbnail for the link to the video, that's pure YouTube speech. So we're not even blaming YouTube for ISIS's speech. It's it's YouTube speech. Um, I don't think I I don't think the court was going to buy that. They were really struggling in the oral argument to give him any, you know, do you have anything else for us? Is that really all you have is thumbnails? And he basically threw up his hands and said, yeah, I'm, it's all about thumbnails. So I think to your other point, the court got a, a detailed look at section 230 and they said, wow, this is not the right case uh, for us. The, the, the right case for them is going to be one where the platform has done more with the content than just used it in the recommendation algorithm. So is to what what is the future of 230? What is the right case? And you know, this particular Supreme Court, which is obviously very overwhelmingly conservative, you know, three justices appointed by former President Trump. I mean, is this is this as easily to, you know, it, is this a strictly conservative versus liberal issue? I mean, if you're how is a conservative court likely to rule, in your opinion, when the right 230 case comes up? 
Because Trump, I mean, early in Trump's presidency, he was the one who said we're going to, you know, strip away this protection for big tech. Right, and I think I think there's there's only a little room based on the text of the statute for for the court to do too much, um, and it would have to go to this idea of developing content and and making some creative interpretation that puts more responsibility um, on on the. Uh, um, on the platform. But what the lower courts are saying is if all you're doing is providing quote unquote neutral tools, you're not developing it. And the tech companies are saying the algorithm is the algorithm. It's a neutral tool. It just boosts based on your user profile. Um, that's not Supreme court law. That would be, the, that would be the place where the action is, is would, would the Supreme court accept this neutral tools test or would they uh, place more responsibility on the platform? Last question. Sorry, Joe. One more question. Just, uh, you know, obviously, if the decision went another way, you know, it could, it could break the Internet. And so, you know, <laughs> so many, I mean, what are the implications of stripping, to, you know, uh, 230 protection? I mean, there you can't really get your head around it. Right. I mean, it's it would literally change the way we use uh, all of these platforms. Right. It, it would, because you, when you think about the volume of user-based content that these folks are, are dealing with, if suddenly you're opening the, the door to liability for some subset of that, how to, like, try to run a business and figure out how much money you have to put in reserve for litigation when you're, you know, YouTube, I think, is up to 500 hours of video being uploaded every minute now, Um and so, you know, they do what they can to screen for the content, but uh, stuff is going to slip through. It does slip through. And if that every one of those is a lawsuit, boy, then you've really changed the way the business works. That's Professor Michael Carroll of the American University, Washington College of Law. Professor, thank you very much for the insight. Thank you. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast, let's get to the topic of incivility in law. Erica Harold was recently quoted about the issue in a recent article from Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. And we have with us returning Erica Harold, Executive Director of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Erica, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So, Erica, as the executive director of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism, you spearhead raising awareness and conducting training on civility issues among Illinois lawyers. Of particular concern to the commission is incivility rooted in things such as gender and racial bias. How significant of an issue is incivility in our profession, particularly along gender and racial lines? It's a very significant issue. One of the things that the commission does is conduct surveys of Illinois attorneys to try to assess the significance, severity, and magnitude of incivility that lawyers experience. And from 2014 to 2021, the commission saw that incivility based on sex, race, and age increased. And that's of concern for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's just wrong on a moral and ethical level. It also affects issues of retention and promotion within the legal system. Uh, 62% of lawyers that were surveyed in 2021 said that actual incivility discourages diversity in the legal profession. And anecdotally, we find that just in the conversations we have with attorneys. So it's a very significant issue. 
And this, the commission is always focused on ways of trying to enhance lawyers' cognizance of the real harmful impacts of incivility. Erica, the excellent article in which you were quoted has lots of examples of unfortunate uh, cases of incivility, even in the last couple of years. And it really brings to mind, and the article discusses the effect of COVID and the pandemic, um, how that has impacted civility in our profession. I know from personal experience, you know, being a litigator, um, one of the issues that I see uh, as a result of not being in court and, you know, as again, was referenced in the article is you don't see people, right? You're not uh, forced to conduct yourself in a certain type of behavior that we're all used to. Those of us have been practicing for a while. You know, you know, you got to get up, you got to get dressed, you got to go to court, you got to stand in line, you got to be quiet. You got All those things are lost on Zoom. We've all seen sometimes humorous, sometimes very, you know, unfortunate examples of people doing certain things on Zoom, showing up for court hearings. Again, I see it myself when we have Zoom hearings and People don't even take the trouble of putting on, you know, a coat and tie and dressing like you would in court. I know that COVID's had a dramatic impact on incivility, but please tell us your experience in that area. I think you hit the nail on the head that the normal camaraderie and sense of community that would be fostered through that interpersonal interaction when you're waiting in the hallway for your case to be called with opposing counsel and maybe you're able to settle it that way or build rapport, a lot of that is being lost. And so it's a professionalism issue in terms of what's appropriate way of conducting yourself in a Zoom hearing. There are all sorts of horror stories about people behaving badly in Zoom hearings. And I think part of it is there's a sense almost of anonymity where you're not face-to-face with someone. And so it feels less harmful to lob a retort or to say something that's insulting or vitriolic. But I think another thing that's being lost is if you're not seeing people, you don't, you're not building up that goodwill that would make you overlook an insult that you might otherwise. And so if people don't know each other and somebody says something negative, then they are more likely to respond in a negative way as opposed to saying, this person may just be having a bad day. And so there are obviously some really important access to justice gains that we have experienced as a result of having Zoom hearings. More litigants are able to have their cases heard without having to go to court and to perhaps get childcare and things of that nature. But I think we do have to be really aware of the fact that Zoom hearings may foster incivility within our profession. So, Erica, against that backdrop, another thing we've been seeing, and it started pre-COVID, but I do think COVID accelerated this, is the issues of how people conduct themselves on social media and just their general online behavior. We see prominent figures behaving badly on social media. We see people that we know behaving badly on social media. How does this all factor into the incivility issue in our profession? I think the unfortunate reality of people spending less time with each other and more time online is that there are greater opportunities to unnecessarily destroy your career by putting comments that you simply did not need to make in general. I won't highlight any specific people, but I spend a lot of time on Twitter, and sometimes I see lawyers engaging in ways where I think, You are part of the legal profession and you are insulting people. You are sharing client confidences. And this kind of behavior is not just bad for an individual lawyer, but it certainly impacts the way people view lawyers generally and the profession itself. One of the things that the Illinois Supreme Court stresses in the rules of professional conduct 
is that if you're an attorney, you're part of a profession and you are a civic citizen, which means you have a greater obligation to consider how your actions impact not just yourself, not just your clients, but the profession as a whole. And so the commission offers a couple of tips for attorneys who are looking to navigate social media in a more appropriate way. One thing we would suggest is in this age of everyone expressing strong opinions about a variety of issues that are important, we would encourage people to say what they promote or support as opposed to what they oppose. Social media is littered with people denouncing and condemning, but sometimes you can make the very same point by upholding and amplifying the good. So we would say amplify the good as opposed to always condemning the bad. I would also suggest that people mute people and unfollow people that are toxic and engage in ways that you know are going to elicit strong emotional reactions from you. And that could be even people with whom you agree. If you know that reading someone's Facebook postings, or, or as people call like hate watching and hate scrolling, if that's going to trigger something within you, it's best just to unfollow or to mute because you are much more likely to respond in an uncivil way when you are emotionally triggered. Erica, in addition to the nexus between, you know, social media and incivility, there's obviously also, in my opinion, a correlation between the general rise of incivility in society, right? I mean, I was at a, a basketball game for my beloved Celtics last night and, you know, three rows ahead of me, there was almost a fight between two Celtics fans. We shouldn't be fighting among each other. You know, we're about to enter the bit, what, what they're saying will be the busiest holiday weekend of all time. We're yes. going to see viral examples of road rage. We're going to see the video, the inevitable video of people fighting on in airplanes, right? Um, yesterday, Derek, G, uh, not Derek Jeter, but Aaron Boone, the manager of the uh, of the Yankees, got into an altercation with an umpire. He got ejected for the uh, fourth time. The umpire said he spit on him. Uh, we know that our former president, you know, was not shy about calling people by their, you know, calling people names. January 6th. This is all a trend that's not very hopeful for uh, a decrease in incivility. There's got to be a correlation between looking at people in what used to be in positions of, of authority and role models acting a certain way and us in the legal profession, especially the younger ones acting a certain way. I think it's, you highlighted a really important point that although we're talking about incivility in the legal profession, the profession does not exist within a bubble or a vacuum. And so we're seeing the rises of incivility throughout society as a whole. You see it at sports games for young people where I have a friend who actually forwarded me the email that the parents received reminding them to behave in a way that's civil and reminding them of their duty to be good role models of good behavior. And we would encourage lawyers to lead by example. So many lawyers hold positions of power within their community, positions of influence. And again, it's not just about your individual client. It's about the fact that lawyers often hold political positions. They often lead community organizations. And we would encourage them to lead by example. I was talking to an attorney a couple of nights ago and I was asking her if she thought that there was greater incivility during the course of her career or not. And she said something that was really interesting. She said, I can't really say if it's more or less civil, but I know I've made a choice to change my behavior. She said about 15 years ago, I recognized that I behaved in ways that were highly toxic and uncivil. And she said, I made a personal commitment to actually change that and to treat people with greater respect. 
she said as a result, she started recognizing that attorneys were being more civil to her. And she said it's possible that she was the one who was the problem all along and was engendering and fostering greater civility through changing her own behavior. So I think we have to start with ourselves. And then the commission, the commission hosts a variety of lectures, CLE programs that are found online. We have the CLE deadline coming up, so I will plug our website where we have free CLEs at twocivility.org. But we we also are working with law students because I think it's really important that we foster professionalism as a core value of the legal profession at the very beginning of the career and not wait until people find themselves facing an ARDC complaint. All right. Again, that's executive director of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism, Erica Harold. Erica, thank you very much for the insight. Thanks so much for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. We welcome our first guest, Attorney Sean Downing. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Attorney and OG Celtics fan. Let's go. Sean and I were at the game last night, Joe. We're at game... Five, the uh, second game in the greatest comeback in NBA history. We were way down low, right? We were sitting next to uh, Mrs. Missoula for a little bit of time. Uh, oh, I was, until we were asked to leave. What a game. What a game. We were asked ceremoniously to leave and we caused some trouble. But, uh, Joe, you got to be following this with uh, the same passion you follow the Blackhawks. No? Almost. I mean, I, I'm I'm sorry, guys, but I'm I'm kind of a – a fan of Jimmy Butler and I, uh, I'm not saying I'm not rooting for Boston, but it's kind of hard not to root for Jimmy buckets. That was old Jimmy. That was game one through three, Jimmy. Now we got a different Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't get, you can't get new Jimmy without old Jimmy. So we'll, we'll see. Keep your hands off Jimmy. Uh, we also <laughs> welcome in our more than a friend of the podcast, David Sussler, associate general counsel for the national material P and co-author along with, our own Tina Martini of Inside Out, the bi-monthly column posted in Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Sus, great to see you. Good to see you. And I'm with you on uh, Jimmy Butler. Okay. Well, well, we'll really have to revisit this once this podcast gets posted on, on Tuesday. <laughs> who, who knows where the series will be at that point. Rich, our first topic, uh, name me a story of a former TV game show guest that's now in some hot water. Uh, let's go to the survey. Survey says uh, 
Timothy Blaisneck. I don't know if that's the name, but downstate Illinois, Quincy, Illinois. This guy was a contestant um, on Family Feud in 2020. And uh, Steve Harvey, who is uh, now Judge Harvey, right, for our legal uh, viewers. Uh, Judge Harvey asked him the following question. What was the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? And he answered, I do. Uh, he then said, uh, you know, uh, I love my wife. He then said, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Well, fast forward. So now he stands trial again in downstate Illinois. He was indicted Thursday by a ground a, gra a grand jury uh, for murdering his wife. His wife, uh, they were going through divorce proceedings. Um, a restraining order had been filed against him. Uh, they had uh, some children. Uh, uh, the body of Rebecca Bleesneck, who's 41, was found by a family member inside her home after she failed to pick up her kids. She'd been shot multiple times. What's notable, in addition to all of that, Tina, a couple of things that are uh, are interesting about this case, this very tragic case, of course, is that um, he uh, allegedly, the sister of the decedent, received a text from Rebecca uh, sometime before this happened, saying that, you know, if I if anything ever happens to me, uh, uh, then look to my husband. Her words were, if something ever happens to me, make sure the number one person of interest is Tim. I am putting this in writing that I'm fearful he will some, somehow harm me. That's according to her sister who took the stand Wednesday and described this to the jury. Um, so we see a lot of that, right? We see a lot of uh, recent prominent cases where uh, victims of crimes, especially murder, uh, seem to foresee their um, uh, ill ill happening to them. And then also we see a continued trend, Tina, of really dumb criminals, you know, especially when it comes to murders, uh, people using the Internet in the dumbest ways possible. What we heard on Wednesday in Quincy was that uh, his Internet uh, search history brought up things like how to open a door with a crowbar how to make a homemade silencer, and how to wash off gunpowder. Again, we've covered various stories where people have uh, searched similar items and later been charged with murder. That's, of course, very damaging testimony. But, um, you know, we don't want to make light of a murder of a, of a wife and a mother of several kids. But, you know, how dumb do you have to be to do all this and think you're not going to get caught? Yeah, Rich, and even without all of the other data points that you've profiled about the text to the sister, the internet searching that he did, which we've covered on numerous occasions, as you said, over the years on this show of like the dumb criminals and searching these sorts of things on computers at work and whatnot. But all you have to do is watch the video of this guy when he was on Family Feud and the now Judge Harvey's look on his face as he's asking this guy this question, he gives the answer. He has this pretty psychotic look on his face that reminded me of a young Jack Nicholson in like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where it's just the guy looks like he is really troubled. And I mean, all I had to do was watch that video and hear what happened to know that somebody who says that in such a visceral fashion clearly feels that way and really did not love his wife at all. So I, I, it's a horrible situation and this guy is really something else. Tussler, do these people think that the police don't have the ability to search their histories? Do they think it's deleted? I mean, what, 
obviously, you know, you don't step in the mind of a murderer like this guy, but it continues to be shocking that you're going to go to the trouble of murdering someone, you know, how dumb you are in, in allowing this search history to be found. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I have no idea. It, it, it shouldn't be difficult to stop and think about it. Um, I often say, I'm, sometimes I'm surprised when people commit crimes, but I'm not necessarily shocked by it because I know people do it. But I don't think like a criminal. I mean, look, I'm an in-house lawyer. I think about cybersecurity all the time. So the idea that somebody might look at my search history is sort of, you know, level 100. Um, but people just don't, you know, these I, I couldn't call this a crime of passion because he obviously thought about it, um, but he didn't think it through. Yeah, Sean, if you're on that jury, I mean, how damaging do you think all of this is? The text, the search history, also, you know, the pictures of him uh, now in court, he looks pretty clean cut. He looks like he did on Family Feud versus just a few months ago, the pictures that were showing of him. He had long hair, he had a beard, he looked totally different. So, you know, when you contrast that, you're sitting in the jury, it certainly looks like someone who's changing the way they look to be more, uh, to give a more clean cut image to a jury. Yeah. I mean, it's not the best picture to paint in front of a jury, but I wouldn't want to be convicted on how I might look on a Saturday morning. Um, but, you know, definitely the Internet is putting these people in jail. We I don't know about Illinois, but we have a similar case in Massachusetts where a, a man suspected of killing his wife and he went on his son's laptop and researched how to how to dismember a body, how to hide a body. You know, when they have them on video surveillance. Yeah, one of the is he's dumping bags in the dumpsters around the, yes. uh, yeah, okay. yeah, the Walsh case. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, uh, it's obviously, uh, very, uh, uh, fortunate that we have access to this technology that makes prosecuting people like this, uh, easier. Rich, let's get to the next topic. Some recent news regarding Gabby Petito's parents and an interesting note that they recently received. There's a lawsuit involving Petito's parents. Gabby Petito, of course, uh, is the young lady who we now know is murdered um, because uh, uh, Robert Laundry, uh, or not Robert Laundry, um, Brian Laundry uh, admitted in a uh, note that he killed her and then killed himself. This is in in uh, in, in Utah uh, in their cross country trip that we all saw. We saw the video of the stop, and you know later uh, her body was discovered. Um, now, Gabby Petito's parents uh, have shown a letter that Brian Laundrie's mother wrote to her son um, that include references, Tina, to getting a shovel and burying a body. She said that if you were ever in jail, I would bake a cake uh, to uh, put in a uh, file to get you out. And she said if there was ever, if you ever need help burying a body, I would be there. Now, she says... In her response, asking for a protective order for this note not to be seen uh, in front of a jury. And by the way, this this case involves a lawsuit by uh, the victim's parents against Laundry's parents for emotional distress. Um, and they found this note that also, by the way, says burn after reading. The mother says this was written many months before this disappearance, before they even went on this road trip. And while it certainly sounds incriminating, she says, I had no way of knowing what would happen. I, I had no nothing to do with murder or, you know, I wasn't intending on covering it up. But listen, any reasonable person reading that note would infer uh, either that she was involved in the uh, murder or she wanted to be involved in the cover up somehow. 
Uh, and the judge agreed. The judge let it in. So let's let the jury decide, you know, what relevance and what materiality they give to that note. But again, just like what dumb things. It's like who who would write such a thing? Um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what's inside our head, but um, the jury's going to look at that, and I'm sure it'll have a great impact, just like the other evidence we discussed in the family feud case. Yeah, you know, and I don't think you know her argument in an attempt to sort of mitigate. The severity of the evidence, I think, actually ends up creating more of an issue for her because this whole notion, like if you take her statement to its logical conclusion that she wrote this many months before the alleged murder took place in an attempt to try to make it look like there wasn't the causality or the relatedness of the letter and the actual murder if anything, it makes it look like it was even more premeditated because everybody knows that that relationship was very tumultuous and it was going on over a, a significant period of time. It wasn't like they had started dating a month before she ends up dead. So, um, you know, this is where it's like, you know what, it, it's just the whole notion of, you know, it was unrelated. And, you know, that's why you put, you know, burn after reading. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, Susser, is it possible that it's just a coincidence that it really had nothing to do with his subsequent, uh, you know, murder and disposing of a body? It's hard to believe. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. Is it likely? I don't think so. It's a really bizarre letter. And I think at best for the mom, if she could prove that she wrote it months earlier, it still shows a certain state of mind that she thinks her son was capable of committing horrible acts and getting in trouble with the law. So she'd be there to protect him. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it does them any favors whatsoever. Rich, it's been a while since I've actually had a hot pocket, and now I think it might be a little bit longer in hopes of <laughs> avoiding any gunfire. You know, I've, uh, I've gone through a lot of arguments over food in my life, but not to this extent. Yeah, I mean, a uh, Kentucky guy named Clifton Williams was charged with assault and pleaded not guilty in Louisville uh, because he uh, he shot someone for eating the last Hot Pocket. Uh, his roommate, who uh, apparently was the, perpetr the perpetrator of the Hot Pocket theft, uh, was his, his roommate, as I said, for Clifton Williams. And uh, Williams, according to the police citation, got mad that his roommate got the, got the last hot pocket in the freezer. Uh, he began throwing tiles at him. There was a physical altercation. And then the victim tried to uh, go back and, and threaten Williams, who uh, then got a gun, followed his roommate outside and shot him in the butt, um, according to the complaints, and uh, then was arrested. So um, in Kentucky, uh, the sentence is five to 10 years of convicted of second-degree assaults, um, all over a Hot Pocket. You know, listen, I mean, you know, Hot Pockets are delicious. They're fast. I think I've burned my, the top of my mouth a couple times when I've been too excited to eat pepperoni Hot Pocket, but um, never shot someone over a uh, delicious uh, pocket of pizza goodness. I used to eat them all the time, actually, and I concur with you that there's a high probability of burning one's mouth when ingesting a Hot Pocket. I think if I had to look back on my childhood, I probably burned my mouth more on Hot Pockets than I did on any other thing that I ate 
um, as nutritious and wholesome as those hot pockets were, um, they did come with a certain level of danger, I guess, to one's mouth. I mean, this story is crazy, Rich. First of all, that someone just has a gun laying around. Second of all, that they wield it against their roommate, you know, because of a hot pocket. Um, third of all, that this is like to use the word assault is just like not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this guy could have ended up dead. I mean, he's lucky that he didn't get killed over a hot pocket. So I don't know. I'd throw the book at him much more than what he's likely to get for shooting someone in the butt over a hot pocket. But, you know, that's just me. Don, you and I, I agree. Yeah, I was going to say, you and I had a nice meal last night in Boston before the game. But um, is there any, what food is uh, is shooting worthy? Like what food, uh, Hot Pocket is probably not worthy of taking a bullet for, but what food would you say is worthy of taking a bullet in the, in the ass for? Nice steak, nice like Wago, maybe? Nothing, you're stumped on that one. I see your eyes. I don't know. I don't know if I could shoot somebody over food. Some clam chowder. There but you, you were thinking chowder. about it there for a second. Yeah, well, there was definitely a moment there. It might, it might even be a hot pocket that you would take a bullet for. What's your favorite hot pocket, Sussler? I've never eaten a hot pocket. Oh my God. Come on. There's no plan on eating a hot pocket. Number one. Never. I've never had one. We're we're no. all so proud of you, Sus. We're never having a hot pocket. You've never what, had one. Did you hear Sean? Sean's never I've had, had one. I've had pizza rolls, but I've never had a hot pocket. Yeah, yeah. I've had pizza rolls. Never had a hot it's pocket. It's basically it's basically a big pizza roll, is what it is. Right. That, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's a one. cheese one that was awesome. <laughs> I I used to get the ham and cheese one. It was like my go-to snack after school, which again, long time since I've had one. All right, Rich, uh, come January, TikTok is going to be banned in the state of Montana, and some of the content creators are not happy about it. Yeah, January 1st, 2024, actually, TikTok is no longer legal in the state of Montana. This is on trend now. A lot of states are threatening to ban TikTok over concerns that it is a tool for the Chinese government to spy on the United States. Not just statewide, but many um, nationally have said so. I know Ron DeSantis, newly uh, newly named uh, uh, Republican presidential candidate, just entered the race. Of course, Donald Trump uh, has has said that. Um, some Democrats have also uh, said that that's an issue. So, uh, in this one case, one of the plaintiffs has ninety seven thousand followers. Um, she makes videos, Tina, about living on a ranch, parenting, recipes, home decor. And uh, it allows her, according to the complaint, to triple her family's income. Um, The lawsuit was filed just hours after the uh, governor of Montana signed the law, signed the bill into law. Um, And it basically makes a First Amendment argument uh, that, you know, you are abridging unfairly on our ability to express our opinions. And also that this is not a state issue, that this is a federal issue. the uh, Montana Attorney General responded by saying TikTok is spying on Americans, period. It's a tool of the Communist Party. Um, the fine under this new law, Tina, is $10,000 per day for each time someone is offered the ability to access it. Uh, now, there was a, there's workarounds, right? You could just drive literally across the state line and uh, create or post your video, and presumably you wouldn't be, um, you wouldn't be uh, charged. But this is the first of... A trend that I think we'll see continuing to happen. 
you know, does that fine include every time that you log on to TikTok? Is that is that considered making it available to you? Yeah, well, the law says uh, each each time someone is offered the ability to access the social media platform or download the app. So, yeah, presumably every time you're, you know, interacting with TikTok, uh, there's that there's that fine. So definitely a heavy hand. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, I understand, you know, I'm all for the First Amendment. Um, but at the end of the day, if if these, you know, assuming and taking at face value that these privacy concerns are legitimate and that there are these underlying issues with respect to how the TikTok platform is being used and violating people people's privacy in a way that they may not even fully appreciate, I think that those really tip the balance in terms of and you know dealing with First Amendment issues. And it's not like these folks don't have any other avenue of speech, right? I mean, life was going on well before TikTok. People were finding ways through other social media platforms and, and just traditional platforms to get their message out, to make a living. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out with respect to the state versus federal issues. Um, but, you know, I just, I agree with you, Rich. We're going to see a lot more of this. And I think when you've got this, compelling issue with respect to privacy and safety and stuff. I think that that's a very important concern. Yeah, what bothers me, Sean, about this uh, law is that it's really ambiguous in a couple of ways. It's ambiguous about how you're going to enforce it. But more importantly, it's ambiguous about what evidence there is of China using this to spy on Americans, right? I mean, I think we, we we run into a danger when we allow the government or any you know state or federal government to ban uh, outlets like TikTok, like any social media, with this general notion that we're being spied upon. I mean, that's that that feels like 1950s, right? That uh, the government spy on you and these shadowy other you know government agencies are spying on you. That should be used incredibly sparingly, and only when there's overwhelming evidence, in my opinion, that that's actually happening. Because then, when does it stop, right? I mean, now it's TikTok, maybe it's Google, maybe it's YouTube, um, without some concrete evidence, which doesn't exist right now that this is being used by the Chinese government to spy on Americans. I think you got to weigh heavily and, and sign on the favor of, of allowing it. And that's spot on to the way I was thinking, because A, we haven't seen hot evidence of, of exactly what the Chinese are getting from this. And other than being based in China, how does TikTok differentiate itself from, like you said, the Facebooks and the other platforms that are out there? They could very easily be mining data from people as well. I'm not a TikTok user. You know, I discussed this with my kids briefly and I know, well, I do appear in some dances occasionally, but I asked my kids about it. The only information so far they've had to give to set up an account is an email address or, or a password. Go give us your TikTok dance. Uh, you know, if not, but for the bum shoulder, Rich, I would. Thanks for stealing that one, Sean. Back in my day, TikTok was a harmless Kesha song. I don't know what's happening to the world now. Uh, Tina, who knew that it would be the male exotic dance establishments that had all the drama these days? Well, Joe, earlier this month, the male exotic dance company Chippendales filed a lawsuit in California federal court against a man who claims to be the eldest son of the Chippendale founder, Steve Banerjee. His name is Jesse Banerjee, and he claims that he is the heir and rightful owner to the business, including the Chippendales brand, and that he's been robbed of his rightful inheritance to the brand and to the royalties. 
Chippendales USA is actually the company that owns the brand and owns the business. And they've actually sued him because they're claiming that Jesse has been illegally interfering with the company's trademark registrations. And they're also disputing Jesse's alleged lineage back to the founder. So the founder, Steve Banerjee, does not really have the cleanest of backgrounds himself. And actually, back in the 90s, he was arrested multiple times, including for plotting the murder of his business partner. And after that all went down, and as often happens when founders are you know, not in good health and are about to pass away, he actually transferred his entire interest in the business to his wife. And there have been several changing of hands in the Chippendales assets since that time, with the ultimate owner, Chippendales USA, owning all of the assets since 2000. So Jesse Banerjee, the purported son of Steve Banerjee, has been making some pretty audacious claims that these transfers of the business assets to different companies are illegal. He actually has started filing his own trademark applications, as well as as far as Chippendales USA is concerned, committing fraud on the trademark office by trying to get the trademark office to change the ownership information to him rather than Chippendales USA. So Chippendales filed suit, and they're also you know, making several arguments here, including, and I actually deal with this quite a bit too, dealing with what's called fraud on the trademark office and saying that they really don't understand how the trademark office could even indulge this purported son of the founder um, because there are safeguards in place these days with mandatory identity verification safeguards. Um, but in any event, this is what we call a declaratory judgment action that Chippendales USA has filed to try to make it clear and get the court to issue a ruling that they're the owners of all of this IP and the company and not um, the alleged son of the founder. So, Rich, I find, you know, obviously I love these branding cases. Um, I found this one particularly interesting because of all the drama and intrigue. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know. Chippendales was a bigger name, I think, you know, years ago. Uh, I think there's some attempts to revive it now. And, you know, what I was thinking is it would make a great movie. And then I realized there was, there is a movie, right? Uh, that is running, I think now on maybe Hulu or something. I saw a bit of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, some of these stories when you involve, uh, you know, highly leveraged brands and family members and crimes, it, it makes sometimes what could be boring intellectual property news very interesting uh dave what's your take on this one Sussler. well i i when as tina mentioned the thing that i find most disturbing is is what the trademark office has done by apparently changing records to reflect his ownership um just based on the face of the article uh, there's no way this guy has a legitimate claim so that the with the pto changing their registrations to reflect him in any way. That to me is the most troubling aspect of it all, because how do the rest of us who have registered trademarks then rely on the security of the USPTO? Dina, I'm glad to see that Taco Bell is pulling back their efforts from trying to hog all of the celebration for Taco Tuesdays and share its rightful embrace with absolutely everybody. So, Joe, you don't see this very often. Usually you've got companies like Taco Bell going to war 
over protecting brands. This time, Taco Bell is filing petitions to cancel two other companies' trademark registrations for Taco Tuesday for the very reason that you just profiled, claiming that it's generic and that no company should be allowed to protect the phrase and stop others from freely using it to talk about and celebrate tacos that happen to be served on Tuesdays. So what's interesting is that this phrase has actually been the subject of a lot of legal debate over the years. And from a legal standpoint, it's interesting that there have been at least two companies that were mentioned by Taco Bell in this context that for decades have owned trademark registrations with Taco Tuesday going back to the 80s and 90s. Taco Bell is not seeking monetary damages here. Um, As they said, they're just looking for common sense to be applied in deciding this case. And what's interesting is that there have been many companies and individuals over the years who have tried to register Taco Tuesday for restaurant services, food items, and otherwise, some of which have actually been successful recently and a lot of whom have not been successful, including our very own LeBron James, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast over the years, who very recently was told by the trademark office when he tried to protect it, that this phrase is so commonplace that it cannot function as a brand. This is one of a number of similar situations that Taco Bell is using as ammunition um, to try to get these registrations canceled. And we see this sometimes happen over time where um, very popular and notorious brands over time no longer function as a brand because people are using them in a way where they don't they don't any longer signify one source. It's what us trademark lawyers call genericide. And there are many names and many terms that we use today that used to actually be brands, such as aspirin, cellophane, and yo-yos. Those are just a few of many examples of words that used to be brands that are now dictionary words. My favorite, Rich, in terms of Taco Tuesday marks that are still registered and out there today that somehow were out there at the same time and coexisting with Taco Tuesday is Tuesdays were made for tacos at Rosa's. I love it. I think this stuff is really cool and fun. I mean, Taco Tuesday is as American as baseball and apple pie. I mean, there's no way that this should be used only by this one holder of the um, of the IP. So, yeah, I'm in favor of uh, freeing Taco Tuesday and allowing it for everyone. Don, you're a fan of Taco Tuesday? I'm a big fan of tacos, big fan of Tuesdays. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the, the word ubiquitous in, in the article. That's exactly what it is. I mean, we've been, you know, we use the phrase in my house, have been forever. It's just ridiculous that somebody's trying to do what they're trying to do. And, you know, good for Taco Bell for trying to step on them a little bit, not looking for money. But again, this is, I think, one of the reasons people don't like lawyers. <laughs> Thus? Well, all I can say, well, yeah, I think it's silly that it's a registered trademark. And uh, I think it's generic and should be canceled. But I will say, I've heard a lot of people say they've never heard of Taco John. Um, I heard of Taco John before I ever heard of Taco Bell. Started eating Taco John in the 70s in high school and in the 80s in college. It was great stuff back before I knew what good food was. 
Joe, favorite menu item at Taco Bell? Go. Oh, the chalupa. No, it's it. I forget what it's called. But it's got the it's got the oh man, the Crunchwrap Supreme. I mean, it's it's all it, that reigns. Crunchwrap Supreme. That's our favorite, Sean. Oh no, I don't do Taco Bell. I think I ate a Taco Bell. Only once Taco John's. We heard. Only I don't eat a Taco John's either. I I eat real Mexican food now. No offense to those brands. If I went, I think it'd be the Chalupa. There you go. Fun to just eat and say. Well, exactly. I know Rich already kind of jumped the gun about going around the table, but although Tina leads off this story, I kind of wanted to leapfrog Rich and seal the signature sign-off discussion for this additional legal face-off. I think it'd be interesting to hear, after this discussion, of course, to go around the panel and ask, what movie prop or costume mm. memorabilia would you most want to have if you could have one? Because this next story involves probably, maybe, the most popular item out there in cinematic history. Take it away, Tina. So I will start with the story, and then we'll get to the favorite prop afterwards. So... Um, this story involves the very famous red slippers from the Wizard of Oz. And last week, a federal grand jury indicted a Minnesota man for allegedly stealing one of only four remaining pairs of ruby slippers. So for those of you who thought there was only one pair of the ruby slippers, there were actually at least four um, that were used during the production of the movie. And these are, of course, the ones that Judy Garland, who played Dorothy, wore in The Wizard of Oz. The federal prosecutors allege that Terry Martin stole the iconic slippers in 2005 from the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which, to be honest, I had no idea even existed. So the shoes were originally insured at a $1 million valuation at the time that they were stolen, but apparently their current market appraisal is around three and a half million. The shoes were recovered by the FBI and Grand Rapids police in a sting operation back in 2018. And these charges against Terry Martin were brought after a long running federal investigation, which began right after the shoes were stolen. The investigation spanned many states. And actually in 2015, a very wealthy Wizard of Oz fan offered a million dollar reward to anyone who could identify the person who stole the shoes and where they were located. The shoes were then recovered in 2018 and were authenticated immediately afterwards. Martin faces one count of theft of an object of cultural heritage from, from care, custody, and control of a museum, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison if he's convicted. There's not a lot of other detail being provided at this time, given that the case is ongoing. What I found really interesting, Rich, is that there are private collectors that own at least two of the other existing pairs, including a pair that was jointly acquired by Leonardo DiCaprio and Steven Spielberg, and which is at, currently on display um, at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. So definitely coveted. Very beautiful, almost 100 years old. And I think they actually look pretty good given how old they are. Yeah, I just wonder what this guy was doing with the shoes. I mean, if you're going to steal shoes, sell them, make money, this guy didn't sell them. I'm just wondering, like, how many days in his basement is he running around dressed like Dorothy, wearing those ruby red slippers in a macabre recreation of 
the Wizard of Oz, you know, he's like got munchkins and flying monkeys down there and he's wearing the slippers. So yeah, the whole the whole story just creeps me out. But throw the book at the guy, you know, it's an American they're, classic. They're tough to trade for crack. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the aftermarket is for the shoes, but um yeah, 3.5 million. Throw the book at him. They were just made that it was a local guy, right? The museum said that they were upset that it was uh, one of their neighbors. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's a good question, Joe. Let's go around the horn. Uh, let's start with uh, Downing. Uh, so what's, what would you have it? What would you break into a museum and steal if there was no way to get caught in movie history? What prop? The tough one. I, I, I have two, but I'll just go with my, uh, my first thought was the lightsaber Darth Vader uses to kill Obi-Wan. Ooh. Spoiler alert. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's very good. Do you want me to go to number two? <laughs> yeah, why not? Go ahead. Chaz Palmieri's Cadillac, or the convertible from a Bronx still. Oh, it's a good one. We're, uh, great movie. Oh, yeah. Is it better to be loved or feared? Uh, go ahead, Sussler. Um, gosh, I don't know. I, I never thought of owning any movie memorabilia, but thinking about it, I'd probably want um, the uh, bridge of the of the Star Trek Enterprise, and I'll take. I want both the original and next gen bridges. Wow, good one. We've got a couple of sci fi geek answers so far. That's good. That's a that would be a good bridge. Uh, Joe Brands, you asked it. You better have an answer. Yeah, don't give me that. Don't give me that, don't give me that standard Joe looking up, thinking. <laughs> There he is. There's the look. Eyes up, pondering. I'll go with I'll go with the mink coat from Goodfellas. Oh, where yeah. he's like, hey, hey, give me that. I told. What did I tell you? No big purchases. Take it back. Take it back. I thought you were going to say the pink Cadillac, Joe. Take it back. Or that too. What did I tell you? Take it back. Take it back. <laughs> All right, Tina. So I'm going to come out of left field with this one. I think this may even shock us. So I would love the leather outfit that Olivia Newton-John wore in that last scene of Grease. Of course. <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> and they get out of the car, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the car that, you know, floats away in the sky. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, well, my, you know, my fit. Goodfellas is my like second by close hair second favorite movie. My first favorite movie of all time is, of course, Scarface. So I would have uh, you know what else? But a big pile of cocaine that he was uh, that he was on his desk. Uh, you see that piece of shit up there? I never liked him. I never trusted him. I got two things in this world: my word and my balls. So it would be uh, it would be the cocaine pile. That's a good question. Um, but I got a game also to finish up our podcast today, as if we haven't gone long enough today. Uh, I got a game. So, again, Sean and I are old-time Celtics fans. We go way back. We've been to a playoff game now for about five or six years in a row. Um, and last night, after the victory, the TNT crew, Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, and um, you know Shaq, they were asked to read a phrase in their best Boston accent. So I thought it would, and they did so miserably. I thought it'd be fun if we did that exercise today. And then we could hear from the one with the actual Boston accent, 
what it should sound like. Yeah. What do you think? Like the Southwest commercial that everyone quotes. That that old Southwest commercial, the, the concert was wicked hardcore. The concert was wicked hardcore. Where they're all training their accents before they fly to Boston. No? Anybody? Okay. All right. Well, that's that's your that's your you uh, just make up our sentences. You don't give uh, us well, a I was I was gonna give you a sentence, but that one's pretty good. All right, uh Sussler, how's your Boston accent, you think? I don't have a Boston accent. I'm from Decatur, Illinois. Give me a give me a southern hick accent. All right. Well, then you're disqualified. <laughs> Tina, I'm gonna the, the sentence is this. Are you ready? I'm gonna say it in my accent. Jack's car ran out of gas at Harvard Yard. I'll say that in your best Boston accent. I'll say the last part of it, Harvard Yard. <laughs> right. Not, bad. Not bad. Here's another one they tried a lot. This is the one that screwed up Barkley pretty bad. You ready? Saudi at Fenway Park eating chata on the monster. Language is that? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, Sean. Saudi at Fenway Park eating chowder on top of the monster. You kind of sound like Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daddy, you give us the real version of any of that. You know, really, the key to doing it is just don't overdo it. You know, it's almost it's just the lazy eyes. It's you know, pack the car and have it yard. Nah, there you know, go. it's. I mean, it's the the real hometown is that you know have probably a more distinct Boston accent, but Chowda, Bahaba, Maine. Uh, I prefer the mayor. Uh, the mayor of uh, uh, the Simpsons mayor, Springfield, his version. Or, uh, citizens of Springfield. Okay. All right. Well, that show was a real ripper. <laughs> Wicked piss. Uh, big thanks to our earlier guests, Professor Michael Harris, Arika Harold, Albert J. Solar, and our producers, Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face Off podcast. Please do us a favor, give us five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Another big thanks to our legal grab bag guests as well, of David Sussler and Sean Downing. I'm Joe Brand with on the Legal Face Off podcast. Celtics in seven. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.